Welcome to the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. I'm Laura Deirda, an editor at Becker's Healthcare, and I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Nadim Galu, Medical Director of Structural Heart with Virginia Heart. I look forward to an engaging discussion with him. But before we begin, Dr. Galou, can you please tell us a little bit about your background? Certainly. Uh, thank you for inviting me on the podcast. I'm Nadim Galou. I'm the Medical Director for Structural Heart for Virginia Heart, where uh, I'm now greater than 50 provider group um, in the uh, Washington, D.C., Northern Virginia area. That's uh, the area that we serve. Um, and my focus in the group is structural heart procedures uh, and evaluations of uh, patients with valve disease and structural heart disease. I've been with the group for about five years. I'm an interventional cardiologist and been practicing since 2002. We uh, primarily do our more advanced procedures um, out of uh, INOVA Heart and Vascular Institute, which is part of the INOVA healthcare system here in Northern Virginia. Oh, fantastic. Welcome to the podcast, and we'll dive right into the questions here. What are the biggest trends in catheter-based therapies right now? I think with little argument, most people would agree that the, the biggest trends are in the area of uh, catheter-based heart valve interventions. Um, the uh, area that's gotten the most press has been transcatheter aortic valve replacement, and these uh, procedures are now being done routinely. They've gone very quickly from a research procedure to being done only in patients who are not candidates for surgery to now becoming the default procedure for aortic valve replacement. And uh, this is a minimally invasive approach. It doesn't require any large incisions. We simply do uh, a heart valve replacement using catheter-based technologies, typically using the artery in the leg. Patients are up and walking, oftentimes uh, later the same day, and they usually go home within one or two days. Uh, It's typically a very short recovery. Um, When you compare that to what was happening with open heart surgery, uh, which was the only therapy available prior to this, uh, you're typically talking about anywhere from five to seven days in the hospital and several months at home to have a complete recovery. So it's a major advance um, in in therapies. The catheter-based approaches are now being advanced into the other valves, such as mitral valve therapies. We do have some FDA-approved therapies already available, uh, which we are utilizing. But presently, they're limited to patients who are not good surgical candidates for the most part. But again, uh, as with the aortic valve uh, therapies, uh, this, uh, the research and the science is rapidly expanding and developing. And uh, we do believe that the future is very bright for uh, other valves, such as the mitral valve and the tricuspid valve. And we hope to have those therapies be also the default therapies rather than open heart surgery for most patients. Got it. And how do you see interventional cardiology evolving in the future? Interventional cardiology is uh, such an exciting field. Uh, part of that is because we're typically the one area we, where we move the fastest from bench research to actual clinical trials and then and then to uh, actually uh, offering the therapies to, to patients. So I think for from a catheter-based interventional cardiology, uh, approach. Um, the area of growth right now, as I mentioned, is mostly uh, more, more, the most dramatically noted in catheter-based interventions of heart valves. We've also seen uh, a great deal of evolution in the therapy for cardiogenic shock and heart failure. 
Um, I have the privilege of, uh, privilege of uh, ha- having as one of my partners, Dr. Alex Truesdale, who is one of the thought leaders in this field um, for mechanical circulatory support. Um, and I really see this area evolving as well. Uh, so this is the area where uh, patients who have either an acutely failing heart or a chronically failing heart, um, uh, are, these folks are, are typically very ill. Uh, oftentimes they may present with a heart attack with low blood pressure. And in the past, uh, these patients had a very high mortality. Uh, we didn't have a whole lot more to offer other than just opening the artery and hoping that the patient would recover. But now we can actually insert uh, what are called mechanical circulatory support devices. Uh, these are devices that assist the heart in um, uh, improving cardiac uh, flow and, and, and uh, uh, tissue perfusion uh, while the heart is resting and recovering. Um, and I think that this is a very exciting field and it's also a very rapidly evolving field. The second uh, theory in general, the second sort of evolution in general uh, that, that is really being pursued is miniaturization of the devices. And I think that that is really key. It's definitely um, helping us a great deal in the catheter-based approaches to the various cardiac therapies, such as valve therapies, coronary artery disease, mechanical circulatory support devices that I just mentioned, and other devices that are coming down the pipe. So these min- the, the miniaturization of the devices allows us to be able to do these procedures without incision, but also with less complications and much shorter hospitalizations than what's been the case, uh, even with catheter-based devices. Presently, where the catheter is very large and the risk of complications because of vascular injury or bleeding is very high. Um, another area that I see cardiology and interventional cardiology evolving uh, is in the sort of specializations that are occurring in the compartmentalizations that are occurring. Um, Ten years ago, an interventional cardiologist, for the most part, did the same thing as any other interventional cardiologist, with rare exceptions. However, now interventional cardiology has become very specialized with areas of subspecialties within interventional cardiology. Uh, this, uh, these are things such as uh, uh, complex coronary interventional specialists that open up vessels that are chronically occluded, the specialists in shock, and folks like myself who specialize in catheter-based procedures. Um, so I, I, think, I think it's an exciting time for cardiology and uh, the uh, evolution um, is ongoing um, and actually uh, very rapid. That's fascinating to hear and really exciting to hear about all the technologies coming out. Now, I wanted to ask you real quick, what is your best advice for cardiology leaders or aspiring leaders to develop a thriving practice? Private practice has become a challenge, um, and that's because the the healthcare delivery system has evolved a great deal uh, over the past 15 to 20 years with regards to uh, reimbursements, and also um, how reimbursements are managed and how healthcare is managed in general uh, with regards to population-based healthcare models. Uh, I think private practice um, is an evolving field as far as what's going to happen long-term. One of the trends that we're seeing a lot in our area is uh, uh, primary care physicians moving into what's called concierge medicine, meaning that they don't—they no longer directly 
participate with insurance companies. And uh, sometimes this involves memberships with their organization that they would create. Um, and sometimes it's a, sort of a monthly fee or a combination of, of, of both. The issue there is that, that in our area, uh, which is actually a very wealthy area, uh, very well-to-do area, folks have a difficult time finding a primary care physician that accepts insurances. Um, and uh, that's become a problem in this area. But if you extrapolate, if, if in a well-to-do area, you're having trouble with access to health care. So what's going to happen in, in a rural community or, say, in a community um, where access has historically been poor, such as minorities? So the, 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 the private practice model, I think if someone's going to go into that model, um, I would say they need to think out of the box. Um, I think they obviously need to make a living um, and make sure that their business model is, is uh, geared towards that. But I think also uh, they need to think in terms of, of the community. Um, and one of those ways is to partner, um, make partnerships with insurance companies if possible. Um, the uh, uh, other trend that's going on is people are partnering with private industry. So very large employers, I'm talking employers that may have several thousand people work, uh, working for them, uh, they're beginning to partner with uh, practices to provide their patients access to health care. I'm sorry, their, their employees access to health care. And, and that's a terrific model because it, um, it allows their staff to be more productive and miss less time if they have very rapid access to health care. Um, there's been some models like that that have been developed, and I think that those types of partnerships are probably going to increase. Now, that's a very good thing for people who are employed by large companies, but many people aren't. And in, in, in that setting, I think there are still opportunities. Um, I think partnering with uh, non-governmental organizations uh, that have been created uh, with their stated goal of trying to improve access to health care in rural communities and in, uh, in uh, urban communities that may not have that uh, may not have good access to health care, and also uh, can minority com communities, such as the uh, uh, African American communities or Native American communities that historically have had challenges um, in having access to health care. There are organizations out there uh, that are that are trying to improve access, and so uh, I would. I would suggest that perhaps that also be explored by people that are going in, uh, in into practice on their own. So uh, those are my thoughts. Absolutely. And thank you so much for going through all of that. There's obviously a lot to consider when going into your practice and deciding where and how to conduct your practice. Um, my next question is, how do you anticipate your practice will grow and evolve over the next two to five years? Yes, yeah, so um, my practice uh, is specific to catheter-based procedures. I, I think really the greatest evolution is going to be in, in continued development of the science um, of de uh, developing these technologies that allow us to do procedures on the heart without incisions. I think that's really the, the big area that everyone's so excited about. Um, and uh, for me particularly, I think that that's an exciting area. Um, some of the areas where we're going to see that type of sort of growth is, as I mentioned earlier, in the in the uh, valve space. I, we've already we're sort of already there with the aortic valve, but the mitral valve is a, is an exciting area. Um, 
uh, our institution is uh, involved in several research trials um, and, and, and valves that have been developed, and we're going to continue to expand that. And we're hoping that in the next two to five years, we'll actually have a valve replacement therapy for the mitral space as we do for the aortic space. Similarly, for the tricuspid valve, therapies are being uh, developed They're currently in the research trial phase, and we also participate in that. Um, in the coronary arena, these are the heart attack patients or the people that, that develop chest pain with exertion because they have blocked arteries. Uh, more and more, we're able to do um, complex procedures. Oftentimes, we can avoid surgery. Although surgery sometimes is the best option, we, can, we do have many therapies we can offer the, that allow patients to have a better quality of life through catheter-based interventions. I mentioned earlier, uh, there's going to be a tremendous amount of growth in the area of heart failure therapy. Uh, one of those areas we mentioned earlier was the mechanical, mechanical circulatory devices, but also a great deal of, of advancements in, um, in transplant medicine, uh, which is uh, being able to transplant a, a heart into a, an individual whose heart is failing. Um, that's another exciting area which I think will definitely expand. And then various sort of high-tech technologies uh, which um, marry uh, pharmacy with um, catheter-based or device-based interventions. An example of, uh, of that is uh, one of the challenges that we have is when we open up an artery, we actually modify and change that artery and change the function of that artery. So when someone, let's say, has a blocked artery in their heart or has a heart attack, we put a metal stent in. Um, in the early days, this was a bare metal stent with no drug coating on it, which, which uh, unfortunately sometimes in, in a small minority of patients would allow scar tissue to grow into the stent, creating a new blockage. Um, that led to the development of drug-coated stents, which meant that the, uh, there was a small amount of drug uh, which prevented scar tissue formation from occurring. And now we're actually developing something called a, a, a resorbable stent, a bioresorbable stent. Um, and that's the stent that you put in, but then the entire stent resorbs over time. So you take care of the blockage, but then over time the stent goes away. The benefit in that regard is that you maintain the function of the artery over time, which is the muscular function or the vasomotor function of the vessel. Uh, the early experiences of that haven't been fantastic, but they have given us a great deal of insight. And I think in the next two to five years and perhaps 10 years, we're going to be able to see um, these therapies being offered, the resolvable uh, coronary stents. Um, so those are a few of the areas which I think uh, we're going to evolve in. Um, the other area that I really think is very fascinating is, is uh, the um, uh, genotype-directed medical therapies. And, and, and these are, uh, this is what I, what I mean here is that certain medications work better for certain genotypes than other medications. Um, and this may allow us to target therapies uh, based on your genetic profile. Some of that is already happening, uh, and I think that this is another area that will expand uh, rather dramatically uh, over the next over the next decade. Um, and and the other area that I think, as far as you know, an area of growth for for cardiology in general, um, is I think uh, access to healthcare. I mean, I think that's a, a big big issue right now. There's a, uh, a great deal of disparity uh, in how healthcare is delivered, um, and I think that does need to be addressed. Dr. Fauci actually made that comment in the COVID. Uh, era that that's become uh, an issue that's that's come to, to to the surface, and I think we need to 
address that. So I think um, uh, outside of the box thinking to make sure we get health care to everyone that, that requires it uh, regardless of uh, um, financial resources is, is another area, I think, of, of potential growth, for lack of a better term. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much for going through that. And now I have one more question here before we wrap up our discussion. What trends in healthcare are you most excited about today? So, you know, um, COVID-19 has really forced us uh, to look at a lot of things. One of the things uh, that I think the entire medical community is very excited about uh, is the fact that advanced communication technology has now been brought into medicine. Uh, for many years, this was tried, but it really wasn't something anyone was very excited about. But COVID kind of forced it upon us, right? So there's been a tremendous expansion of remote healthcare, um, where we're able to see patients from the comfort of their own homes. Um, and and what we've learned, at least in our practice, is many patients actually like that a great deal. Um, in, in our suburban area, our offices are relatively close to where people live. But if you think about that, uh, if you were talking about access to healthcare and you develop sort of very um, robust remote technologies, you can uh, act, you can provide access to healthcare to rural communities, to underserved communities. Now that's going to require uh, a partnership uh, between the medical industry um, and and uh, um, government and insurance companies um, and what I. One, one example of that is that, that, that patients will require uh, sort of basic monitoring equipment at home, uh, blood pressure monitoring equipment, um, uh, blood sugar monitoring equipment that's, uh, that's above and beyond what we have now on the market. So that this is, this is uh, technology that will allow uh, electronic communication with their uh, primary care physician or cardiologist or what have you, so that perhaps you can provide the healthcare at a distance. Um, not everybody has to come into the office for every visit. Certainly in certain situations, that's the most appropriate track is for, for you to have a direct face-to-face -face visit with the patient. But in many instances, particularly when you're talking about population healthcare, you can often deliver this therapy to a uh, remote connection. So I, I think that's really an area that I'm very excited about. Uh, now, that's going to require a great deal of work from our government. Uh, one area that we really need a great deal of help is, is frankly, internet access for rural communities to underserved communities. Because without that, remote technologies really aren't possible. Uh, so I'm hopeful that that's an area that the government will look at very closely, perhaps pr um, partner with some of the uh, 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 companies uh, that, that uh, deliver uh, internet and perhaps have it be subsidized for certain communities. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Gulu. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure to speak with you and I look forward to continuing our conversation in the future. Thank you so much for your time and I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you and your audience.